You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Well, hello there. Thank you for listening to the All Hazards Podcast. Today, we're going to be sitting down with Tony Rahotis Jr. He's the Imperial County Fire Chief and OES Coordinator for that county. He's going to talk about the 2010 Mexicali earthquake. Do you remember that one? Were you around for that? Well, that was a 7.2 quake that rattled towns all along the Southern California border. Now, get this. He was pretty new to the job, having only been on, what, about a year, year and a half? as fire chief when that shaker hit. Now suddenly he was faced with all kinds of demands and challenges coming in, the likes of which he had never seen before. So now what, what does he do? Well, he persevered and how he approached this stress can help you too throughout your personal and professional life. He's gonna talk about that and a whole lot more right now. Fire Chief Tony Rojotas Jr. Correct. Thank you for having us here today. Thanks for being here. This is awesome. I love it. Couldn't ask for a better day to be inside talking to you. That's correct. It's a beautiful day in Imperial County. It is. Give it a couple more months and uh, you'll be wishing you were back in Sacramento or somewhere else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are here today uh, because you were uh, the fire chief when the Imperial earthquake hit. That's correct. Back in um, April 2010, 10. Easter Sunday. So it was in April of 2010. And uh, tell me about what your role was when when that incident happened. Uh, my, my role is is not just the fire chief for Imperial County, but also the, the um, OES coordinator for Imperial County, the Office of Emergency Services Coordinator. Uh, so my major role was uh, uh, opening the EOC and establishing personnel to, to – uh, uh, staff the EOC during the emergency. Um, there was quite a, quite a bit of effects that uh, took place uh, in certain cities around the communities, uh, damages to roadways, water systems. Um. So how much did you feel here? I actually live in Brawley, which is approximately 15 miles north of here. Okay. And, and, and just put it this way, I, I was sitting, uh, it was Easter Sunday, and I was sitting at my uh, table in, in, the, in the front room of my home, and after when the earthquake hit, I actually just started getting dressed because <laughs> I knew, knew it was time to go to work. Yeah, I actually uh, walked out to my unit and got my handheld radio and started listening to the traffic and started putting my uniform on. And I remember my wife saying, where are you going? I said, well, I don't need to uh, receive a phone call on this because it was it was the, the, the shaking was really intense and it was obvious that there was going to be damages. And. If we weren't the epicenter and, and I could feel the shaking, I, I just knew that the damages would be greater farther away, and, and they were. What kind of radio traffic did you hear when you grabbed the radio, you turned it on? What did you hear? We, uh, we already had incidents coming in of, of roadway damage. Um, we had a phone call. We, have, uh, we had emergency traffic because I heard one of my stations getting paged out as I was actually getting into my unit, and uh, it was kind of surreal because we have a huge fuel farm and I, you've probably seen these fuel farms in you know certain areas throughout the, throughout the nation where they house millions of gallons of fuel and I heard one of the stations getting paged out to uh, one of the tanks leaking and I mean these tanks hold anywhere from a hundred thousand to a million gallons of fuel 
and we actually had damage to one of those at one of our fuel facilities in the so city of Imperial. You had a hazardous material spill now. Well, also. Yeah, actually, but for that facility, it's a huge fire risk. Yeah. Just because all of a sudden you have thousands, hundreds of thousands of potential fuel all over the ground. Um, we had uh, calls of our stations going out and surveying, and I could hear the engines reporting back for damaged bridges, d damaged roadways. Um, this station here, uh, our EOC actually had a huge water leak where the um, main that comes into the building was leaking in the ceiling. So we had to shut that down. Uh, we had some damages to our apparatus bays. Um, just just stuff, uh, little significant items that may be small but still significant to the operations that had to be dealt with while we're looking at the big picture of all the damages to the cities uh, that the county serves. So how long was it before um, you started to really get an idea of how severe it was here in Imperial County? Um, just listening to the radio traffic and, and all the departments throughout the valley. You know, I had my radio on scan and I could hear Calexico being paged out to a great deal of uh, incidents, City of El Centro, and then, of course, our own stations. Um, right away, I showed up to the EOC. And, and you know it's significant when you show up to your EOC and people that you haven't called upon are already here saying we're ready to staff whatever position you need and that was a really nice feeling is and i i've said this a lot when i when i've discussed the emergency is when i showed up to the eoc i actually had two department heads that were here saying what do you need and, and after i started getting everything uh, going the, the people kept trickling in i didn't have to actively call people they were showing up here knowing that they had a role to play to staff the EOC, and it was really nice to see. I mean, obviously, we've had training in the past, yes. and, and these people already recognized that there was an emergency, and they were, you know, ready to step up. They responded immediately. Yes. They yeah. knew exactly what needed to be done, Absolutely. and they started to do it. Absolutely. And we had social services here. Our planning department and public health were the first three people here. And those are three major components in the system. They already knew what they needed to do. They were already recalling, you know, their succession people within their own agencies to come in and assist or start getting files to help in the EOC. So it was really nice to see. So tell me about um, the activation here and how things sort of came together and how long it took. Actually, the activation, I was on the phone with the CEO on my way down. And I told them I, I was going to declare a local emergency. So he was already working, you know, the, the county CEO, talking to board members and working with county council on that. I would say within an hour, we had a really tight staff in the, in the building to get things going. One of the first things we had to do, though, is we had ceiling tiles we had to get out. We had some cl house cleaning here we had to do. This office, I mean, my bookshelves were down on the floor. Uh, we had, you know, water containers, you know, the drinking fountains and everything, leaking water down the floors. Um, just significant items like that that we had to clean out just to get going, mm -hmm. but but it was real seamless. I mean, it was it, it was uh, kind of mm -hmm. sur surreal because you had so much commotion going around you, but all the personnel were stepping up and, and responding. You know, be better than I could have ever hoped for. Minimal effort on your part because they all knew their job. Correct, and they responded the way they should. You know, we we immediately turned the radios on to our mutual aid channels, and we were getting a mm -hmm. great. Um, great responses back from all the agencies. We were talking to the hospitals, some of their surrounding cities. Uh, the one big thing we had issues with at the beginning were talking to our counterparts on the Mexican side of the border. Because we could hear a lot of rumors or a lot of commotion going down about what was happening down there. 
but we really needed the feedback to know if we were going to have an influx of personnel from across the border coming this way for medical assistance or what was happening at the border. Mm-hmm. And um, that was probably the biggest confusing uh, component that we had. And so uh, what actually happened then? What was confusing about it? You were hearing rumors, but what actually played out? What played out was um, we were told that a great deal of their hospitals had been damaged and they were having to evacuate people, which was true. They did have some damages to their local clinics and hospitals, and they were moving people around, but it wasn't the the extreme damage that we had initially heard. Um, Then we just have a lot of border crossings on a daily basis anyways. And being a holiday weekend or Easter Sunday, the potential of if the border's not open, is this something we're going to have to deal with? Because we could have an influx of, say, thirty or 50,000 people that reside on that side of the border stuck in Imperial County. How do we deal with that as well? Mm-hmm. So we actually had to set up logistics, and I actually sent a couple of personnel from my own agency as liaisons to go down and meet with the Mexican government to find out what was truly going on. So I would assume that there is a clearly defined... Uh, standard operating procedure so that when something like this happens right here in your neck of the woods with regard to the border and events that may happen in Mexico, how you're supposed to respond in those situations, I don't think that a lot of us think of that because we're not at the border. Does that present unique challenges for you? It it always does, and and our department's very um, unique, and uh, we're probably one of the only counties that actually has a working mutual aid agreement with Mexicali. Uh, we can send fire units down into Mexicali. We have an MOU, an agreement with them that our board of supervisors signs with, with the Mexican government as far as allowing my personnel and certain equipment to go across the border for, for either fire suppression. We can go across for hazardous materials or rescue assistance, but we can only go down for technical assistance and not equipment. But we are allowed to take some of our fire engines across the border. And it does present a, a unique... Um, a unique situation because we don't share all the common frequencies. Uh, the training's obviously different. It has worked. It, it's it's minimal. We we don't do it you know on a regular basis, but if it, it happens occasionally, and uh, it's um, it's unique because on the Mexican side of the border in Mexicali, there's close to a million people in, in that community. So I mean. It's, 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 it's a huge area, and it's a huge potential impact for us if, if, if we do need to provide that service or those persons are going to be coming across the border looking for, say, medical assistance. A lot of those people might be coming across for medical assistance. Some people actually that live in Mexicali work in Imperial County. That's not un- uncommon, especially in the produce or the field working situation. But there's actually employees that just reside in Mexicali for you know, maybe a lower cost of living but still work in Imperial County, and they commute back and forth every day. Mm-hmm. Um, if they end up on this side of the border, that's someone that potentially might need to be housed for the next couple of weeks if the border's closed down. So how many uh, people did you have coming f- across the border? It was obviously a lot less than what the rumors it were It was indicated. a lot less than what the rumors indicated, and it wasn't a huge problem for us. It, yeah. it was dealt with uh, the, the um, immigrations and customs agents at the, the port did a great job. One of the issues, though, at the port was they had some potential damage to their facility that had to be looked at before they could uh, open to full scale. So I think that's a, slowed it down a little bit because they had to bring engineers in to look at the actual facilities where the cars pass through. What struck you the most when you think back to the way things played out? You know, it, it wasn't. It, w- it was the uh, as an emergency manager, you always prepare. You're always working on these scenarios, these tabletop tabletop exercises. 
or actually uh, smaller events, what was uh, st- stuck out the most to me still today is some of the issues that you deal with as an emergency manager that you don't really incorporate into your daily trainings or your regular trainings that become a reality all of a sudden. You're like, I've never had to deal with this. And on certain situations, can you turn to anybody else? Because a lot of people haven't dealt with it as well. Uh, we had significant school closures due to the damages. I, I remember schools being uh, one of the issues that we had persons from Cal OES, FEMA, here in, in within this office working out of the EOC and having to bring the school districts in and have these meetings to get the schools back open. Luckily, this happened on a Sunday. It was an Easter Sunday, so school was out. But the kids were supposed to return to school a few days later. Well, some of this, the damages to the schools actually forced these schools to be closed for a few weeks. Well, that's a situation that, yet yeah, as an emergency manager, you're not usually dealing with. And I didn't directly have to deal with it, but I had to coordinate the meetings and put the people together and talk and keep this, this kind of... Uh, continuity of operations keep, keep it flowing mm-hmm. and that's not something you usually train with how did how did uh your knowledge of the area help you in that situation well i've lived in imperial county my whole life which is which is uh, that's a plus in a situation like this because you have uh face-to-face knowledge of all these people you talk to these people on a regular basis our population is about one hundred eighty-eight thousand. Uh, but we have a huge county. It's it's a very large county. Uh, but having a smaller population, it's really easy to be able to reach out and, and have somebody's cell phone contact or, or know somebody personally that you can reach out to and bring them in. And, and that's, that was a great aspect of this whole emergency is um, the collaboration of the different agencies. It's something we do on a daily basis. A lot of the same people that I meet with through our disaster council meetings or our OES meetings are the same people that are Office of Education superintendents or even our water district personnel. They're just people we know on a daily basis, and it's so easy to collaborate and have that working knowledge of, of what needs to be done and just get it done. And so it's these relationships that you've built over the years, not just professionally, but personally, having grown up in this area. I would imagine that plays a, a big role in your ability to know who to call, um, even if they're not on your list, right? Correct. I, 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 you can't say enough about networking if you actually know somebody. And when they walk into your office, you already know their capabilities because you work with them on other projects. Mm-hmm. So you, it could be simple as simple. Hey, I need a bulldozer. And next thing you know, someone from your local water district or public works walks in. You're all, hey, so-and-so, guess what? I just happen to have a need for a water, uh, 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 some kind of uh, piece of equipment. Yeah. And it's there. And, and yeah, great. But it's, that's something networking has to be done ahead of time. And I've stressed this, uh, having this discussion with multiple people after the incident, you need to know your resources and the people that can help you with those resources ahead of time, not at the time of the emergency. Right. Any dilemmas that you encountered? Um, anything that uh, where you had to stop and actually think, oh, man, what do I do about this? I, I, I wouldn't call them dilemmas. Uh, maybe a little bit of a learning curve. When you have a large-scale emergency, one thing that I was not used to is all the influx of personnel from, like, your agency, Cal OES, that come in and the personnel from FEMA that come in. We, I've, I've worked with those persons on fires, out-of-county responses, uh, smaller events in the past. But now, all of a sudden, uh, within our EOC and, and, and uh, the people that were here realize, all of a sudden, you have 75 people in here working. And... They're not reporting to Cal OES. They're not reporting to FEMA. They're reporting to you. They're here saying, what do you need from me? Which was great. 
but then you're just trying to take in all the aspects of what they need to get accomplished. And you're a facilitator. That's not a problem. It's just that all of a sudden we're not used to having that many personnel within our agency all at once. And and the response was great from both agencies. Uh, They came in 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 large amounts of people. Uh, We needed building inspectors to walk door to door in certain areas of of the cities. And uh, we had a gentleman here, um, Dave, I can't think of uh, Dave's last name at the time, but he was the chief building inspector from Cal OES that comes in and uh, has all this information that he can provide for for, uh, tagging buildings. And uh, I I remember we were having a discussion and he said, I can have people here in no time. And next thing I know, I had 20 building inspectors here that needed to be sworn in. So it's no big deal. It's a great thing. But now you're just now you're working on trying to get these people sworn in by my local building official. We're doing this like on a sat. It was like a Saturday or Sunday morning. I remember calling Mr. Huberger, which is our planning director, telling him the issue we had. He said, "No problem. Have him in my office at seven o'clock tomorrow morning." But again, that was that local contact that I know this individual direct and to make it happen. So I wouldn't call it a dilemma. It was just getting acclimated to certain aspects as you're going and it was kind of it was it was really nice and it was a great educational experience that allowed you to uh, respond quicker more efficiently having all these people here so quickly and uh, yeah that that would be terrific I think the only time you wouldn't want that is if you're you know a, a cook in a kitchen because that's where the the term comes e- from e- right? exactly Too many cooks in the kitchen but you're the chef here and you're the one who's telling people what to do absolutely but but you know you bring that up now you have 75 people working for you they all want to be fed, too. <laughs> that is an issue. <laughs> uh, so, well, hey, you guys are the, the firefighters. You guys are supposed to be the best cooks in public service. And we actually have quite a bit of them, but cooking for 75 and doing day-to-day operations, we catered most of it. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, maybe you uh, you had a uh, an emergency response menu yeah, that no, you I, could pull out. There you go. And say, we want our five-alarm chili, <laughs> cornbread, right? Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? We'll go to lunch after. <laughs> Mexican, food. Mexican food sounds really good. Yeah. That last time I was here. We'll so take care of that today. Rattlesnake chili. Ooh. You guys have that out here, don't you? <laughs> we have plenty of those. She says, yeah, we're out here in rattlesnake country. Oh, boy. Okay. Good. Thanks for that. So, um, anyway, so you're, you're, you're handling all this. A lot of pressure, I would imagine, for someone sure. in your position. Sure. How did you handle that? Delegation. I, I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, it's a great deal of pressure. Um, and the Board of Supervisors and the CEO were very supportive. Uh, we had discussion right up front, said, this is what I need to do. The, I know what your guys' expectations are. Yeah. You know, They kind of opened up the doors and said, you take care of what you need to you know, handle. Um, but then you have great staff in places where you just start plugging them in. Um, I'd like to say this is only going to happen one time in a lifetime, but in 2012, we experienced another significant earthquake, which kind of triggered it all over again, which made it easier, though, because you learned a lot from the first one. Um, But delegation, I I mean, I I knew I had a large-scale incident. I know that the cities were in a good spot with the personnel that they had, and they were kind of just reporting everything back, and I report, you know, funneled it through your agency and through FEMA. You know, to be honest, it lasted for years. I mean, this is not something that last a month and everybody goes away on an incident like this we had cal oes and fema actually open up 
an actual uh, one-stop shop down here where people came to do all their reporting. And yeah, the, not just to the local assistance center. They actually rented a, like a 5,000 square foot business office where they were here for six, six or eight months. That's got to that's got to feel good for someone who lives in this community and says, you know, these folks are going to need help beyond. Cor- correct, and and all of a sudden you you, you see them here for such a long time and and uh, realize what's on the backside of the emergency that as first responders we don't see all the time. I mean, you have a room full of auditors, people that are preparing documents, people that are reviewing legal documents. I mean, the contingent of people that they had here was probably 50, 60 people in this huge office space. Hmm. And they were extremely busy for those those months they were here. When you kind of look back at some of the things that you did, d- do you think of anything that you wish you would have done differently? In retrospect, I think maybe I would have been a little bit more aggressive. And I, I was, I, I feel I was really aggressive the, the 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 first incident and how I made requests and 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 funneled information out and gathered information. And the reason I say be more aggressive is now that I've already been through it. I, I may a little bit know what more to expect for the next time in, in all aspects of it. So to get that on track a little bit sooner. But that's really just from the experience of going through it. Um, there's always room for improvement. I, I, I'm, I, I believe that um, no, none of us are perfect, and I always try to uh, raise the bar every time I do something. And, and I, I expect the same thing from my own personnel. So being more aggressive, reacting uh, a little more aggressively, faster, quicker. Correct. Okay. Okay. And maybe preparation of some of the information that I'm not used to, or not used to of having to provide to Cal OES or FEMA. Um, they, they start asking for estimates on damages, so we got that. But now we know a little bit more that needs to be in the, the details of what they're looking for, so you're not doing it twice. You know, we went out and did the, the windshield assessments and, and got them the best numbers we could for the amount of damages we felt we had throughout the county. But now that being through it, I know the more specifics of what they're looking for. And I think that could save time overall in getting assistance to the locals it is uh, having the detailed information up front the first time they ask for it instead of having to go out and do a secondary survey. Any decisions that you were faced with that were difficult for you yeah one of the big issues that we had throughout the county was water tank storage we all have within our communities have these huge million gallon water tanks that hold the water for consumption well the vast majority of the water tanks throughout this county were damaged due to the earthquake the water sloshing back and forth creating openings in some of these tanks well, if this happens in multiple areas, how do you keep that water where it's still consumable? Because once the tank's been breached, it's no longer considered treated. So having this issue, how, how do you fix that immediately? Something, having a water tank is something that takes years to usually go through the planning process and actually be built. Some of the decisions we had to make uh, really early on is bringing in um, mobile purification systems more specifically into the city of Calexico where they're hooked up, where the water's going through a a treatment facility from raw water to consumable water or potable water um, through a system. Well, there's only a couple of those available in the United States. So it was when we were discussing this and looking for these, it wasn't a decision that, can we wait on this? No. I mean, we need water now. 
and it's in April. So, I mean, the temperatures were already in the 90s, you know, going to be in the hundreds soon. And how long was it going to take for these repairs to be approved and, and taken care of? Those are some decisions that we had to make early on. Was it a cost factor? It wasn't a cost factor. It was an availability factor. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I think one was sitting in Texas, but the one that was available was in New York at the time. Oh. So, I mean, we, we had to start making decisions right away. And it was with um, talking with Cal OES staff and finding that these are even available, uh, then making that decision to, to bring these all the way across the nation for, for use. So you brought them in. That's correct. How long did it take to get here? Uh, three days. Three days. That's not bad. For it, was, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. And, and, I, and I could be off a day or so, uh, but I remember it happening really, really quick. But that was one of the initial decisions we had to make that uh, was kind of like, well, I've never even requested one of these before. I didn't even, you know, d- didn't do, even know do, they existed, do they right? exist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was something that had to be some decisions. Of. As far as personnel within the agency, yeah, some of us had damages within our house that had to be addressed. And, and the whole magnitude of the incident, we were extremely lucky that we were had very minimal injuries. I think we had a total of 26 injuries, a couple of them significant. Um, but for the amount of damage that was sustained in the entire area, that, that was uh, very lucky on our part. The border issue that you have down here, how was that affected? I can't remember exactly how long the border was shut down, but it affected the businesses in the city of Calexico, the downtown district, quite a bit because you have foot traffic that comes into Calexico for shopping on a regular basis. And that whole downtown corridor is a lot of unreinforced masonry. Uh, So a lot of those businesses were either yellow tagged or red tagged. Um, so they were shut down for, for uh, any time they're shut down is significant. So to shut them down for an additional week or two is just not significant for the, the uh, employees or, or the actual business owner, but it's significant for the city as whole as far, far as tax dollars. And I remember that being a big concern on their part, um, that foot traffic that comes across the border on a daily basis to buy medication, whether it's, a, you know, just to buy clothing, um, first couple streets of Calexico, if you've never been there, or it's a really a very old, uh, nice business district where it's just a lot of uh, shops, locally owned shops and mom and pop shops. So it was a great impact on them. How has the community recovered since 2010 and subsequently 2012? I think the, uh, the majority of businesses are, they're all, they're all reopened. We, we did have some businesses or some local facilities that were uh, deemed unhabitable and, and, you know, eventually either torn down or in the process of being torn down. We still have certain areas like our courthouse that had to go through a historical uh, preservation review. So the the repairs are just uh, occurring on that as we speak. Uh, But we're four years away and, and, you know, we're still having repairs done, but it's it's gone through a process. Um, I think I said it earlier, you know, this happened in 2010 and it's not something when the all, you know, all of a sudden you, you were so used to the emergency response on the first responder side, but there's so much to the recovery that we're not always aware of, but the recovery is a huge component because now all of a sudden, okay, the emergency is done. Now we need to get these people back in their homes, get these people back to work and all the cost recovery that goes with it is just such a huge component that everybody needs to be well-versed in. And we need to make sure all of our, our uh, staff that works at EOC is really uh, has a knowledge of what needs to happen on the cost recovery side. Because the last thing you want to do is have these people out of their home or out of work for any length of time. Um, 
because as as public servants we need to uh, that's part of our job and I, I can't say it enough is we we focus so much on the emergency response but the recovery has to be just as quick and these people want answers they don't want to they're not going to want to hear you know we'll get back with you in two weeks if they're living at a hotel they're living in a shelter they're going to want to know as soon as possible how do i get back to my house when did you become chief i became the chief at the end of 2008 so i had been here about a year and a half when this happened a little intimidating it was actually yeah but it was uh an experience that i'll never uh forget and nothing that can never be taken away either it was great experience and uh actually that question gets asked of me a lot and as uh, people say well was it intimidating absolutely it was intimidating um but when you just start putting the training and the experience and i, I mean i've been with, i've been with the department since 92 so i mean emergency response was nothing new this magnitude was something new mm-hmm and you just look at it as a bigger scale. I'm, but I also had personnel that were available to me that I don't have normal. It's just given the direction. And as long as you can be there and be that person to, to provide the direction and, uh, I guess, take on the challenge. Well, you it, took it on, didn't you? Absolutely. That's the only way you can do it. So, um, Is there anything else that you, know, you, you feel needs to be said? that you haven't had a chance to say yet. You know, the, the one thing I always preach now is, is um, preparation for emergencies, um, not just by the local responding agencies, but home preparation. You know, we, we've heard it from years, uh, be prepared for earthquakes at home, make sure you have your water supply, uh, food supply on stage, you know, your, your uh, medication readily available. And uh, I think after some of this, uh, and events like this, it kind of brings it to light to the local area so I continue to say, you know, preparation, preparation in the home place, the workplace, even in the workplace. Do we have policies and procedures ready to, to deal with it within our own agency? If we didn't have water here, how are we going to supply water? How, how are we going to provide food for the personnel that are working in the EOC? Chief Tony Rojonas, thank you very much for having us come by, Absolutely. taking the time to chat with us and share your thoughts and stories about the Imperial Quake, the Imperial Valley Quake back in 2010. I think you've, I think, relayed a lot of important information that other emergency responders, emergency managers can take away a nugget or two and hopefully improve their job performance. And a lot of folks who are looking to become emergency managers as well. So uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. No problem. I can hope I can be available to any emergency managers that might need assistance in the future. Terrific. I mean, I know I had a lot of people come to me or call me and say, can I be of assistance? And we had some people from outside the area assigned at our EOC, and I'm willing to repay those favors in the future. Tony Rahotis Jr., class act, didn't he? Well, he remembers everyone who helped him during uh, that crisis, during the Mexicali earthquake, and he's making it a priority to help others who helped him as well. He's remembering all those folks, and that's a credit to him and to California's mutual aid system. It is one of the most robust mutual aid systems, not only in the country, but probably throughout the world. Now, we have additional show notes and links at our podcast site at oesnews.com. One more time, it's easy to remember, oesnews.com. That's our new podcast and site for other information related to Cal OES and our newsroom. So all you got to do is go to that, oesnews.com, click on the podcast for more on all of our episodes And uh, you'll find all kinds of great information on our blog as well. So check that out. All kinds of multimedia information, pictures, videos, you name it. It's all there. 
Until the next time, I'm Sean Boyd, broadcasting from Cal OES headquarters in Sacramento. Thank you for listening. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.